Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. Matthew 19, 13. If you're using the black Bibles, that can be found on page 824. Our study through the Gospel of Matthew has brought us this morning to verse 13. I'd ask the congregation to stand once again, please, as we read the passage that we want to consider today. What a privilege it is we have to hear the Word of God together. Matthew nineteen thirteen. Then the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, well, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. The title of the message today is, Who Will Be Saved? Who will be saved from their sins? Who will be rescued from God's wrath? Who will be with God forever in heaven? Who will escape the eternal flames of hell? That's what this passage is all about. You you just look down through there, what we just read. Did you notice uh, what verse... 14, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Verse 16, what must I do to have eternal life? Uh, Verse 17, if you would enter life. Down in verse uh, 21, and you will have treasure in heaven. Verse 23, um, it's only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24, to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, who then can be saved? 
um, verse 29, will inherit eternal life. That's what this passage is all about. Who is saved? This is not talking about who are the super elite disciples, right? Who's in graduate school of following Jesus? No, this is talking about who is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? Who will be saved? It's a very important question to ask, right? Who will be saved? Sadly, many people answer that question wrong. Sadly, tragically, I would say, many wrongly think that, well, well good people will be saved. Uh, religious people will be saved. People who go to church will be saved. People who work really hard at doing the right thing will be saved. People who were baptized, confirmed, and married in the church will be saved. People who say a prayer or sign a card or or walk an aisle at a rally or something, they will be saved. But in our text today, Jesus will show us and tell us what kind of people will in fact be saved. What kind of people have eternal life? We begin in verse 13 with an account involving Jesus and some children, right? Look again with me at verse 13. Then children were brought to him, brought to Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Right? So this group of children are brought to Jesus. I imagine some of them were little babies or toddlers that are being carried. Others were probably being led along by their parents. And others were older and they're, they're kind of saying, hey, you know, the parents are kind of saying, go, go up there to him, go up to, to him, right? This was common in their culture uh, for, to ask a, a rabbi to, to lay his hands on them and pray and bless them. And people knew by this time that Jesus was a powerful rabbi, right? Some even recognized him as the Messiah, the promised Messiah. So they're bringing their children to Jesus so he can pray for them, so he can bless them. But notice what happens as, as this is is taking place, the end of verse 13, the disciples rebuked the people. Can you imagine that? The disciples rebuked the moms and dads and aunts and uncles and grandparents who were bringing their children to Jesus. They told them to stop, to quit doing that. Go away, leave him alone. Get your children out of here. They're shooing the kids away. They're telling them to beat it. I guess they wouldn't have made very good greeters in a church, would they? (laughs) Uh, but why would the disciples do this? Well, the first century was not like our culture today where everything revolves around kids. Back in Jesus' day, children were often marginalized. They were dismissed as a nuisance, right? Because they weren't old enough yet to really be economic producers or contribute anything meaningful to society, so the thinking went, right? And matter of fact, quite the opposite. They're actually kind of a drain on resources, right? Maybe someday they can contribute, but right now they're kind of a nuisance. And like, like I said, you know, our culture is kind of the opposite. It seems like everything is child-centered, but really, as I thought about it, in our world, there's actually two extremes, right? There's the one extreme where, yeah, every, everything revolves around kids, but increasingly in our worldwide, there's another extreme that kind of matches, I think, the first century, thinking of, you know, uh, children are kind of a drain. They, are, they do kind of get in the way, right? More and more couples don't want to have kids because it's going to interfere with their careers. It's going to interfere with their hobbies and their adventures and freedom. They fail to grasp what God says in Psalm 127.3, that children are a blessing from the Lord. 
So the disciples viewed these children as unimportant, and so they, were, they thought they were doing the right thing. They're trying to protect Jesus from, from the, the, the interruption, from the, the hassle. You know, I mean, Jesus is busy, right? I mean, he's, he has enough people asking him for things. And so in the disciples' mind, the last thing Jesus needed was to spend his time and energy on, the, on, on these marginalized, on children, on, on the unimportant in society. So that's why the disciples are rebuking them, telling them to scram. But when Jesus saw what was happening, look at verse 14. He said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. So he tells the disciples, hey, guys, knock it off. And matter of fact, you look in Mark's account, it, Mark states that Jesus was indignant with the disciples, with what was happening. He was angry that they would keep the children from coming to them. He says, let them come to me. Do not hinder them. Don't get in their way. In fact, make it easy for them to come. Encourage them to come. Why does Jesus have such an opposite view about this? Why is he so adamant and, and even angry that they would stop the kids from coming? Well, for one, we could say we've consistently seen in the heart of Jesus just this compassion for uh, those who are, are the, the helpless and the vulnerable and the, the marginalized, right? I mean, that's, we've seen that time and time again in his ministry, and certainly this is another example of that. that he, and he's showing them, hey, I'm not too busy for those that you think are marginalized. I'm not too busy for children. My mission is, is not just to the powerful and to those who, you know, you think are going to contribute something. No, I've come to help those who are weak. So that's part of it. But really, the, the ultimate reason he gives us here in verse 14. Look at it again. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For, here's the reason, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his, and then verse 15 says, he went ahead and laid his hands on them. And then he went away. So Jesus tells us why he doesn't want the children hindered. He says, these children teach us something about the kingdom of heaven. And, and again, I just would remind you, Matthew, uh, he says kingdom of heaven most of the time. The other gospel writers will say kingdom of God. It's, it's the same thing, right? Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Later in this passage, actually, Matthew will say kingdom of God even. So I'll, I'm going to use them interchangeably. We're talking about the kingdom that, that Christ had inaugurated, the kingdom that Christ had, had brought in, God's redemptive rule. And Jesus says the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Is he saying all kids are saved? No. He's saying you look at the, these children coming to me and that's a picture of who enters the kingdom. That's a picture of what it looks like to enter the kingdom of heaven, of what it looks like to be saved. These children are illustrations of that. And so he says, don't turn away the very ones who picture for all of us what it looks like to follow me to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we need to consider this picture too, right? What, what would that have looked like for these kids to come up to Jesus and for some to, you know, some being carried to him and, or others, you know, coming up perhaps on his lap or something or, or just embracing Jesus? What would that have looked like? What can we learn from that? What does that teach us about entering the kingdom of God? Well, if you're taking notes uh, there in the bulletin, here's my first um, outline point here. To be saved, you must come to Christ in humble trust. 
That's the picture of the little children here. Coming to Christ in humble trust. Anyone who would be saved from their sins must become like children in their humility and in their simple trust in Jesus. That's what little children teach us, right? Because little children are totally dependent on someone else to provide for them. Right? They're totally dependent. A little child needs someone to feed them, to clothe them, to clean them, to shelter them, to to protect them, to teach them, to care for them. And little children know that they are dependent, right? I mean, yeah, they want to venture off, but man, when when something happens, when they're scared, when they have a need, when they're hungry, when they're hurt, they go running back to mama, right? They're like, I need you. Please help me. Or maybe they don't say please, but (laughs) I need you. They come to mom or dad or grandma, whoever it is, when they are in need. A child in his humble dependence coming to a a parent, trusting that their mom or their dad is going to provide for their needs. That is the exact picture of how sinners like you and me are to come to Jesus for salvation, right? Come humbly, come dependent, admitting that we are in need, admitting that we have sinned against our Creator, admitting that we lack the righteousness that we must have to be in God's holy presence. And so we come, we come, we admit that we, in and of ourselves, we're helpless to save, to save ourselves. But we come in dependence and in trust, believing that salvation is found in Christ alone. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to enter the kingdom. Turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus. In simple trust and faith. Simply believing that Jesus lived and died and rose again in the place of sinners like us. That he did those things to save those who trust in him. And just like we see in this account, we know that Jesus invites sinners to come. Jesus wants sinners to come. He came to seek and save the lost. But you must come as a little child. You must come humbly, not not proudly, right? You must come trusting, not self-confident, not self-reliant. You must come dependent on Christ alone for your salvation, you don't come thinking, well, I've, I've done most of this, right? I just kind of need a little help, you know? No, you come totally dependent on Christ. And, and for many, many people, this is, the, this is the obstacle. I mean, this is the thing that, I don't know if you say keeps them from being saved, right? But this is, this is where they get tripped up. Because by nature, our... our our sinful pride thinks that we can do something, right? Oh, we just, we can be good enough. We can save ourselves. So for many sinners, becoming like little children is the thing that keeps them away. Maybe they believe in Jesus, but they feel like they must contribute something. There's whole religious denominations and systems that are set up that way. Kind of like... <laughs> You know, when, when, you're, uh, when you're out to eat and someone, you know, says, hey, I got it, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pick up the check. And you say, okay, well, well thanks. Well, I'll, I'll leave the tip, you know. I mean, I think that's sometimes how, and, that, and that's fine if you want to do that. But I'm just saying, 
That's kind of how sometimes people are about salvation. Like, well, yeah, I need Jesus, but, but you know, I'm bringing this, and I, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll pick up the tip, Jesus. You take the check, and I'll... No, it can't be that way. Jesus says to be saved, we must come helpless, totally dependent on the finished work of Christ and totally dependent on God's grace and mercy to apply Christ's work to our account. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3. We are bankrupt. Right? That's what I mean. We can't even pick up the tip. We are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and really... I don't know if any of you are getting deja vu here. Not only have we talked about this way back in Matthew 5, but we talked about this just in the last chapter. Matthew 18, 3, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, I mean, really, the disciples should have known this, right? I mean, this has been talked about very recently. But again, you see that. To enter the kingdom, to become a Christian, there needs to be humility, that recognition that I'm a sinner who needs a Savior, that that my sin has brought this debt that I cannot pay. I can't save myself. I'm totally dependent on God's mercy. So that's point number one. To be saved, you must come to Christ in humble trust. Next, then, in verse 16, we see Jesus approached by someone completely different. I mean, these are like opposite pictures here. Verse 16, behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And we're going to see in just a couple of verses that this man is also described as young and very wealthy. Luke's account tells us that this man was a ruler, meaning either he was a synagogue leader or a member of some official court or something. And so that's why many of you probably know this story as the rich young ruler, right? That's the description of this man, rich young ruler. So this man no doubt looked rather impressive by worldly standards, And he asked Jesus this question, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And right there, that's that's very impressive in a way, or that's very hopeful, I should say, in a way. Right? I mean, this this man's not coming like the Pharisees came, what was it, just last week, and we've seen him do it several times. He's not coming to test Jesus. He's not trying to trap him in something. And and really, this man's not even coming with some kind of temporal need that he needs uh, resolved. Right? He's just saying, he, he seems to... Be sincere. He seems to be thinking about spiritual matters and he's, he's, he's coming asking about eternal life. What a great opportunity. He's thinking about eternal things. He seems genuine and eager. Mark's account says he actually fell on his knees before Jesus when he had asked this question. So he already has some kind of reverence and, and respect for Jesus. And so Jesus enters into this dialogue with him in verse 17. He said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So first Jesus corrects this young man's careless use of the word good. He's saying good as applied to human activity is really kind of a relative term. In its truest sense, good can only be applied to God. But then Jesus points him to the Old Testament law. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And that kind of surprises us, right? That he would say that. But, but Jesus is saying, hey, the law tells you what works are required for eternal life. If you can keep the commandments perfectly, then you will have life. And the New Testament even says that, you know, in like a, 
kind of a hypothetical way, right? I mean, when I say New Testament, I'm talking about the epistles. I think it's in Galatians. Paul says something very similar. So he says, hey, if you can keep the commandments perfectly, you'll have eternal life. Well, verse 18, the, the young man says back to Jesus, well, which ones? Which commandments? And that's a reasonable question because, again, in, in um, Judaism, the rabbis said, as they totaled up all the commandments found in the, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible, they said, man, there's 613 commands. <laughs> so it's kind of like the young man saying, he recognizes Jesus as a, good, as a powerful teacher, as a respected teacher. He says, hey, well, get me started. Which ones do you give priority to? Which commandments should I be focusing on here? And so Jesus said to him, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, of course, Jesus hones in on the Ten Commandments of Exodus chapter 20. Specifically, he lists the Sixth, Seventh, Eighth, Ninth, and Fifth Commandment in that order. He skips over number 10 for now. And then he goes directly to Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's kind of a good summary, right, of the commandments. Verse 20, the young man said to him, Well, all these I have kept. What do I lack? And so we're kind of like, really? You've kept all those? You know, I mean, but obviously this man was a pious Jew. Uh, He feels good about how he's ranking according to that standard of course obviously he's thinking outwardly right I've outwardly conformed to those commandments I don't know if he hadn't heard Jesus's sermon on the mount right where Jesus is making clear that God uh, expects and demands not just outward conformity but he cares about your heart right remember Jesus said it's not enough that you don't murder someone. If you have, uh, have anger toward them, hateful thoughts toward them, that's like murdering them in your heart. It's not enough if you don't commit adultery with someone. If you lust after one, you've committed adultery in your heart. So if this young man was, was really using God's standard, he right then and there would have realized, I'm a lawbreaker, right? He should have already been admitting his guilt and crying out for mercy. But Jesus is going to help him. He's going to help him right here in verse 21. He said to him, If you would be perfect, in other words, if you would be mature and complete, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So really, Jesus in essence returns to the Ten Commandments here. Uh, He returns to number 10, the one he had skipped earlier about you shall not covet, right? Because Jesus knew that this was the man's specific problem. With this command to sell his possessions, Jesus puts his finger on the idol that was gripping this man's heart. His love for wealth prevented him from having eternal life. Because Jesus knows, and he's helping, trying to help him see. Despite your, your, your admirable piety, despite your, your sincere desire to conform to God's law, your materialism... Your love of stuff is occupying the first place in your your life. The place that God alone deserves. And so really, you're you're breaking the the first commandment um, to have no other gods before me, right? 
That's what Jesus is doing here. He's not saying that you can somehow earn eternal life if you just uh, sell all your possessions, you know, uh, take a vow of poverty. Now I've earned eternal life. He's not saying that. No, he, he was specifically uh, diagnosing this man's heart and his need. He was calling him to cast down the idols of his heart. And again, back to the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, Jesus taught in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And that's what he's showing this rich young ruler. He's showing him that his idolatrous love of money is consuming him and he must get rid of that idol. Sell everything and then God will be first place in your life. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Then you will be saved. Sell your possessions. In other words, throw off your idols and come and follow me, Jesus says. So he's laid it all out for him. He's diagnosed his need. But look at how the young man responds. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He knew what Jesus was saying, right? I mean, but he says, that's, that's too big a cost. And so he turns and walks away from the Lord. He could not bring himself to give up this idol of his heart. His tragic decision showed that he had a greater love for money than for God. It showed that his security was in his money. He didn't have that childlike faith. He didn't have that simple trust and complete dependence on God. And so this brings us to the second um, outline point here, the, still under number one. To be saved, you must not only come to Christ in humble trust, but you must also follow Christ in total allegiance follow Christ in total allegiance. Again, Jesus was not teaching that salvation is by selling all your possessions. He's just saying, God must have first place in your life. Jesus doesn't ask everyone to sell everything in order to follow Christ, but he does say to everyone, you must surrender everything to Jesus. Jesus must have the first place in your life. Scripture tells us that God is a jealous God. He demands total allegiance. And he did not send his son to die on the cross in the place of sinners so that sinners like us then can just kind of keep living for ourselves. But, oh, well, yeah, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to just kind of tack Jesus on as this, as this uh, fire insurance policy, right, or life insurance policy. No. No, Jesus coming and and living and dying and rising again shows that he is Lord and that he deserves our total allegiance. God is after our hearts. He wants our love and our worship and our obedience. And so to be saved, friends, to be saved, Jesus must be our supreme treasure. This is very important. To be saved, Jesus must be our supreme treasure. He must have our total allegiance. Entering the kingdom requires total surrender to Christ. And so, again, with this rich young ruler, Jesus diagnosed the idol in his heart. And I pray the Holy Spirit will help each of us do that today as well. What are you holding on to? 
What is it in your life that prevents you from unconditionally trusting in Jesus and entering into the kingdom of God? Again, for many, it's pride, right? It's pride. Thinking, well, I'm not really that bad, and yeah, you know, I'm not perfect, and so it probably wouldn't hurt to, you know, kind of have Jesus in my life. For others, it's, it's control. Well, yeah, again, I don't want to go to hell, but, but you know, I, I like to be in charge of my life, you know? I mean, I, I like to plan out everything. I like to have everything in control. I'm, I, I can't give that control over to Jesus. For others, it's comfort. Right? I, I just, I love the pleasures of this world. You know, and I just, I, I don't know if, if following Jesus is going to mean I, I can't indulge in those things. And uh, for others, it's our intellect. I, I want to, I, I'm so used to figuring everything out. And there's certain things that I just can't figure out exactly. And so uh, I just can't trust in God's word. For others, it's a preoccupation with, with what we've achieved or, or who we want to be. Or, or, I mean, it can be a myriad of things. But it's important to search your heart and say, is there anything that is first place in my life rather than Christ? Again, maybe it's even a good thing. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's, you know, a desire to, to work hard, to have a career. Not necessarily bad things. But are they the, have they elevated themselves to a place that only Jesus belongs? And so I would encourage you, I would urge you today, prayerfully search your heart. Is there anything that is keeping you living for yourself instead of living for Christ? And if, if God shows you that, then by God's grace, you must cast down that idol. You must cast down all idols. You must renounce everything else and embrace Jesus as first place in your life. Like we sang, he deserves the first place. Every inch of this universe belongs to him. He is Lord and he is the final judge. So admit your idolatry and come to Jesus for complete cleansing of your sins. Declare your desire to live for him. This is what it means to be a Christian. To give Jesus total allegiance. To follow Jesus as your Lord and as your treasure. Now, admittedly, <laughs> we, we're not going to do that perfectly. Again, we can, we can desire that and we can, we can make that commitment, but we are still going to struggle with that. I understand that. Our remaining sin is still going to lure us with other idols, with other things calling for the first place of our affections and, and hopes and pursuits. But I hope you see that following Christ, being a Christian, means that by God's grace, we daily renounce those idols that have crept in. We, we daily, by God's grace, flee temptations. We daily continue and affirm our trust in Christ alone for our salvation. We continue to affirm and, and declare our allegiance to Christ alone. Who can be saved Well, to be saved, you must come to Christ in humble trust, and you must follow Christ in total allegiance. And this young man was not ready to do that. Maybe maybe later he did. We don't know. 
So as the disciples watched this young man trudge slowly away, Jesus used this as a teachable moment. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, right? I mean, he's trying to get their attention, guys. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says, It's hard to give me the first place. It's hard to surrender all and to depend completely on me. It's especially hard, he says, for rich people to do that. It's it's hard for rich people because their security and their devotion is often tied up in their wealth. It's hard for rich people to see their need, right? They're used to to having everything that, that they want. Or maybe they worked real hard to get those riches. And so they're thinking, I can work real hard to get get. Uh, my salvation secure. They're used to being self-sufficient. It's hard for rich people to surrender all to Christ because they're able to acquire and enjoy so many of the pleasures in this life. And this should get our attention because I hope when I'm saying rich people, your mind's not like, oh yeah, I bet, you know, I bet Elon Musk or Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, I bet they really are struggling with that, you know? I mean, they may or may not be, but friends, do you understand that we are all rich by biblical standards, right? We have so many things. We've got food in our, in our cupboards and fridges and clothes and shelter. We can fall into the same trap. This can be a, a, an obstacle for us, humanly speaking. So this should get our attention. It's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And Jesus again says, just to drive this point home, I'll tell you how hard it is. It's easier for the largest animal that they would have known of, or at least been in their area, a camel, to go through a sewing needle eye than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Of course, he's using a humorous humorous illustration, right, of, of what's impossible. It's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And he's saying it's impossible for rich people in their own strength to enter the kingdom. And so look at the disciples' reaction. I mean, now they are just... I mean, this whole thing has just really thrown them for a loop, you know. I mean, the children thing, and then, and then this guy that looked so promising, I'm sure they were all like, yeah, 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 let's make him part of our gang here, right? You know, and then Jesus does this, and now he goes away. And so they're, in verse 25, they're exasperated. They say, well, Matthew points it out, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Because in their thinking, if you were rich, that meant, that was a sign that you were blessed by God. You had found favor with God, and so now if you're telling us that rich people aren't necessarily saved, as a matter of fact, rich people, it's actually kind of even harder for them to be saved. There's other obstacles in their way. Then who in the world can be saved? Verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. So you're kind of right to be, you know, kind of desperate here, right? Kind of like, ah. With man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That's point two in our outline now. Salvation is completely due to God's grace. Salvation is completely due to God's grace. Yes, Jesus says, it's hard to surrender all. It's hard to die to self and live for Christ alone. It's hard to completely depend on me. Because I know we all... He's saying, I know as sinners, you all have that that pride. And matter of fact, not only is it hard, it's impossible in your own strength. He's saying, on our own, we can't do this. 
on our own. We can't do what God demands to be saved. But, praise God, our situation is not hopeless. If left to us, it would be hopeless. It's not hopeless. Why? Because of God's powerful grace. What we could never do for ourselves, God does for us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches, God gives us the new birth. God gives us a new heart that is able and willing to trust Christ and surrender completely to him. God frees us from bondage to our, to our idols, to, to love of money or to pride or to selfishness or, or false religion, whatever it is. He enables us then to follow Christ in obedience. Through the new birth, God opens your eyes to the truth that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again. God enables you to trust in Christ alone for your right standing before God. None of this, I contribute this much and Jesus contributed. No, you realize it's all Jesus. God gives you a true love for Christ and a desire to please him. Yes, with man this is impossible, but God can and does do it by his powerful grace. Praise God. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. But praise God, that's exactly what the Spirit does. He takes his word and he he moves among and he gives life to dead hearts. Praise God for his grace. Without, without God, we would all be lost. We would all be doomed. God has accomplished everything for our salvation. Right? I mean, do you see that? Not only did he send Jesus, right, to, to live the life we couldn't live but, but had to live, the righteousness we had to have, to die on the cross, paying for our sins, a debt we could not pay, but he's also sent his spirit then to give, us, to give life to our dead hearts open our eyes God has done it all and so today if you believe in Jesus if you have embraced Jesus by faith uh, as Lord and Savior if you have declared your allegiance to him then praise God praise God for his grace in your life if you've renounced all to follow Christ it's because God has graciously worked in your heart God's given you a new heart. He's enabled you to believe. And so thank him today. Be grateful to him today. And not only that, but I I pray that this this teaching reminds you to pray for those who, who don't know the Lord. Pray for your unbelieving friends and family and neighbors. And maybe, maybe you've witnessed to them. Maybe you've You've tried to invite them to church or you've tried to point them to Jesus in some way and they've just, you know, refused. Maybe you look at their life and you see, wow, they're just so uh, enslaved to this world or enslaved to some, some other sinful pursuit. But they're not beyond God's reach. They're not beyond God's grace. So let us fervently keep praying for the lost and, and any opportunity we have, let's keep giving them the word of God. Parents, keep, keep giving your kids the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The Spirit uses the word to, to give life and faith. And lastly, we'll try to finish this quickly. Number three, following Christ will bring great rewards. We, you know, this... this t- 
we're still in the same scene here because Peter said, verse 27 in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? <laughs> and the we is emphatic there. He's, he's kind of, it seems like Peter's just saying, you know, unlike that guy who wasn't willing, we, we have. So what, what is there for us? And something Peter's being smug here. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe he's just needing assurance or something. That they, that they are in, in the kingdom of God, that, that this is going to be worth it. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus assures Peter and the rest of the apostles, you do have a future reward. You're going to judge Israel. Which that right there was kind of turning their their whole uh, understanding upside down because um, the Jews thought that Israel's going to be the one judging the world, right? Because we're the ones who are right with God. And he's like, no, I've created, the kingdom of God is something entirely new, right? You can't force it into old wineskins. This is something brand new. I'm the one that is creating this new people of God, this, the, the new humanity as Ephesians and Colossians talks about it. Jesus continues in verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Again, it's like he's trying to show them how the kingdom of God is something totally different from the world, right? I mean... The first will be last. Guys like this rich young ruler who looked like they were first, who looked like they had it all together, who looked like they were the top notch in, in this world, they're going to be last if they don't follow Christ. But then those who look like, who are marginalized, those who, who look like insignificant, unimportant kids who can't do anything for themselves, people who believe like that are the ones who will be first because they're the ones who truly enter the kingdom. And we'll see this uh, played out in the next chapter as well, the parable of the vine owner. Verse 16, he's going to repeat that same uh, type of phrase. Many who are first will be last and the last first. And he's going to emphasize it's by God's grace. But what he's teaching them now is wh- whatever we're called to give up in, in this life in order to follow Christ, and yes, you will have to give up things. But whatever you're called to give up, you're going to be rewarded a hundredfold, he says. You're going to be rewarded with much more than you are called to give up. So Matthew says, you will receive, verse 29, a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I think Mark makes it a little more clear when he talks about um, both in this life and in the life to come. I think that's what Matthew's getting at here with that hundredfold. He's saying, even presently, you're going to be rewarded with, with blessings and then certainly in the life to come. Yes, it's going to be costly to follow Christ, but it's going to be worth it. You're going to be rewarded many times more presently and especially in the world to come. And you say, well, what are we talking about here? Is this, are we, have we gotten into prosperity gospel? No. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about the people of God. He's talking about the church. Yes, following Christ may mean your family doesn't understand and, or your, your friends may desert you, but you will gain greater relationships within the body of Christ. And yes, surrendering to Christ means you're not going to fulfill every desire of your flesh, your sinful flesh, but you're going to gain peace with God. You're going to gain joy that the world cannot offer. Surrendering to Christ means you give up pursuing earthly riches, but you're going to gain treasures in heaven. 
And so he says, the sacrifices you're making and leaving homes or brothers or sisters or mothers or fields to follow Jesus is nothing compared to the returns that you're going to experience being in the people of God now and in heaven in the life to come. I mean, think about it. Think about what a reward eternal life is going to be. What a reward heaven is going to be. It's worth it. It's worth that struggle, loved ones. It's worth that struggle to daily renounce your idols, to daily deny yourself, and to keep following Christ. Be encouraged that it's worth it. So in conclusion, entering the kingdom of God is as simple as childlike faith, but it is going to cost. It costs you all your idols. It costs, means you renounce it all to follow Jesus. It's total surrender. And today, if Jesus is calling any of you to enter his kingdom and find life. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. No one can enter without God's powerful grace at work within them. So if you hear the spirit calling, respond with with surrender. Respond with humility. Respond with dependence and trust. Respond to Christ. And you'll, have, you'll enter into the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom that lasts forever. A kingdom that brings joys unspeakable now and for eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We praise you for your powerful grace, Lord, and for your spirit that, that moves. I pray that even now your spirit will move among the people hearing this. Show us, Lord, any idols that we have in our hearts. Lord, for any who um, had the wrong understanding of, of what it means to be a Christian, I pray that you will reveal to them what, what you demand, what you expect. I pray that for all of us, you will increase our faith, that you will um, remind us of Christ being our chief treasure. So do a mighty work for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to conclude our service this morning by celebrating the Lord's Supper. And uh, I'm thankful for that. Of course, it's a joy any time to do that. But it also will give us an opportunity um, as the elements are passed out to have a time of quiet prayer. um, Personal time with the Lord to just search your hearts. So... um, I just want to remind you what the, Lord's, the purpose of the Lord's Supper is. It's something that, that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to us. Um, as often as we do it, as a, as a physical, visible reminder of, what, of his finished work, of what he has done for us. Um, it reminds us that the body of Christ was, was broken for us upon the cross. It reminds us that the blood of Christ was shed for us on the cross, that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God that our sins deserve, that we deserve, so that all who look to him in faith can be forgiven, can be cleansed, are cleansed, are forgiven. And so this is something for believers to do. It, it is only for the family of God. Um, so that uh, when the men pass out the trays, um, if, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you've never... Uh, renounced all to follow him if you've never publicly identified with him we would just ask that you let the 
tray pass by. We're not going to embarrass you in any way, or, but it, it's just important that only the family of God take this, okay? So if I could have the men come forward, please, who are going to serve us. And like I said, as, as they're passing it out, I encourage you to just um, take some time and, um, and pray to the Lord and ask him to show you any areas that, where you've let idols creep in to your life. Um, and, and then as God reveals those, by God's grace, forsake those. And, it, and as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of that hymn that probably many of you have sung several times. I grew up singing it. Very appropriate today. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him and in his presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender. Make me Savior, holy thine. Let me feel thy Holy Spirit, truly knowing that thou art mine. Thou art mine. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. I pray God will even use this time to just do do that. Just rekindle your commitment to surrendering all. And like the verse says, to remind you of his love for you. I pray you'll be reminded that he died for you. And that by his grace, he has called you and adopted you into his family.